0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Monday, August 22nd, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. ABC News, this week's This Week is asking all the right questions this week. Where the question was Can Trump really change? When someone shows you who they are, believe them. Or is this one more false start? And the answer is no. Let's contrast that question to last week on This Week, when the question that week was... And with new polls showing Clinton pulling away in key swing states, even Trump himself now asking, can he still win? And the answer is no. Now, by asking all the right questions, I mean that ABC This Week announcer guy is asking all the same questions. Essentially, he just keeps asking is the Trump disaster still a disaster? And the answer is, yeah, still a disaster. Sometimes they go for the superlative, like the week before this week on this week, i.e. a fortnight ago, here's what they asked. Trump's worst week? Well, it was his worst week until the next week, which they noted on this week. Sometimes they take as a given that the Trump disaster is a disaster, but then they ask, so has the other side noticed this? Can Hillary Clinton capitalize? But mostly, this week is there to put the disaster in context. How much did Trump's stumbles hurt him? Now, I have to admit that all those questions, they're more accurate than the usual ABC This Week announcer guy copy. Trump's cratering. That is true. Sometimes ABC announcer guy just asks nonsense questions, though. Like when he asked after the shootings in Baton Rouge and Dallas, can our political leaders help us heal? No, doctors and white blood cells can help us heal. Political leaders can pass legislation to diminish the chances of future acts of violence or not. They're pretty good at not. So that part's pretty depressing. So that's why I like turning to this week announcer guy for the more answerable questions. Can they rally around their unconventional nominee? And the answer is no, a pretty clear no. On the show today, I spiel about that which I haven't spieled about, that which has gone unspieled, and in doing so, I will mention the heretofore overlooked plight of the traumatized peacock. But first, all those 80s movies you knew and loved, or at least were made to watch 400 times on TBS because your family was too cheap for premium cable. Quickly, Einstein, to the DeLorean! Every generation has a certain place in its heart for the music, the media, and the movies of its youth. And it's hard to disaggregate the quality of the movies from our feelings about the movies. That said, the films of the 1980s, which is to say the films of my youth, the films of the youth of my guest, Hadley Freeman, were kind of special. They were also inclusive. They appealed to the sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adored them. Anyone get the reference? Anyone? Well, if you don't, the title of Hadley Freeman's book might also elude you, Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies. Hello, Hadley. How are you?
0: Hi, Mike. How's it going?
1: Pretty well. So that was from Ferris Bueller. Was that, <laughs> was that the, I know, Ghostbusters. Like, like with me, Ghostbusters might have been the seminal movie, but how high up mm. is Ferris Bueller in the firmament of important 80s movies for you?
0: I really can't separate Ferris and Ghostbusters, to be honest. They're both Definitely my number one film, not just of the 80s, but of all time.
1: A commonality between the two of them is that the antagonists were actually right. Like, I know they represent the establishment, but the EPA really did need some oversight over. Walter Peck needed some oversight over that ghost containment thing. And, uh, yeah. And the principal, what's he doing? He's chasing down Fergus. Yeah, Mr. Rooney, we all know what happened to Jeffrey Jones in real life, but, yeah.
0: (laughs) yeah. But (laughs) Mr. Rooney was doing his
1: job. Not doing it well, but doing his (laughs) job.
0: It's true. It's true. One of the things that makes me laugh so much about Ghostbusters of the 80s is that the Environmental Protection Agency is the bad guys. And Rick Moranis' character is mocked for drinking bottled water. Uh, Meanwhile, the Ghostbusters are walking around town smoking while carrying massive nuclear reactors on the back. (laughs) And they're the good guys. You kind of think it would be very much the other way around in a movie made today.
1: People talked about that as kind of a bro movie. And yeah, you talk about all the male bonding and actually pointing out how they never sold each other out and had each other's back. But I always thought that that movie was a lot more gentle than the other seminal, what we might call bro movies, bro comedies like Stripes or like Fletch or the other ones that were a little more aggressive and relied on uh, put downs.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's one of the reasons that Ghostbusters is much more popular than Stripes, uh, even though it stars two of the main leads, obviously Harold Ramis and Bill Murray. In Stripes, the guys are quite aggressive to the women, and. To be honest, the humor, as it often did in a lot of those 80s comedies that haven't really lasted, gets a little bit rapey, for want of a better word, with men just kind of like pushing women towards the bed. Um, saw also in Bill Murray's other earlier comedy, Meatballs, where he does basically just push a woman down on the floor and start making out with her. Whereas in Ghostbusters, what saves Bankman from being completely obnoxious, I think, is that he knows that Dana, played by Sigourney Weaver, is so much smarter and sophisticated than him. And he likes it. And he's also a little intimidated by her. And she's not scared to put him down. Like when she says that line to him, you are so odd. It's like it suddenly puts the audience on her side rather than on his side. And the audience goes, yes, he Is odd. Yes, he is kind of bullying his way into your apartment like a freakazoid. Yes, Dana, you're right. We can see him from the outside. And I think that's a really important twist in the film.
1: Yeah, it is. It's not rapey. It's a little creepy. The film starts with him uh, putting his finger on the scale of what's supposed to be a scientific experiment just because the girl's pretty trying to get a date with a subject. Extremely unethical.
0: Yeah, and literally giving some other poor guy electric shock treatment. I mean, (laughs) if that was played by anyone other than Bill Murray, and obviously it was nearly played by John Belushi, Dan Ackroyd had written the role for John Belushi, it would have been a very different character and a very different movie. Uh, Bill Murray can make almost anyone charming, but I think even he needed Sigourney Weaver's character to help him with that character.
1: You know, you don't write about stripes too much, but one of the things that makes that not less than a great movie is that after the uh, scene in The Proving Ground, after the quick black fox jumped over the lazy dog scene, the movie falls apart. And it's exactly like Full Metal Jacket in that way. The, yeah. t- the training, <laughs> the, the boot camp parts are a compelling study of a subculture. And then the war parts just become a very deragore war movie.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you can kind of see that they didn't really know what to do with the movie beyond the male bonding. Whereas in Ghostbusters, they just keep the male bonding throughout the film. That's what's so great about it. It It goes straight to the end. They don't get bogged down by plot. The plot happens around the male bonding.
1: Now, in several points in your book, you quote executives and experts essentially saying about a beloved movie of the 80s that couldn't get made today. And at some points I agreed, and at some points I disagreed, It's very hard to know, but I don't see how you could argue, one could argue that, say, The Karate Kid could not get made today. It was made in the 80s, but it was also made in the 70s as Rocky, and it kept getting made as The Karate Kid. And then there are other movies that, you know, like, could Inception get made today? It was, and it kind of blew us away. But I think to put your your finger on it is the kind of movie that couldn't be made today is the comedy... That was daring the comedy where the characters aren't clearly recognizable stereotypes where the main characters aren't, you know, stereotypically beautiful. That's the kind of thing that couldn't be made today. The high school comedy that broke those molds.
0: Yeah, the high school comedies where the kids don't look like models, basically. That doesn't get made anymore. That stopped being made in the 90s. I think Karate Kid could get made today, because it was made today. It was made with Will Smith's son. You know, Back to the Future probably could get made today. It would just be an incredibly different movie. Um, When I talked to the director and writer of that for the book, they said... That, you know, you have a movie with lots of special effects, but it wouldn't have the sweetness and the heart. And it definitely wouldn't have the kind of creepy love story between Lorraine and her son, Marty. And Lorraine's trying to sleep with her son unknowingly. None of that would happen. And that's kind of all what makes to the Future feel special, that it's not bogged down in CGI. That it is very specific in its dialogue and very daring, like you say, in its plot. And in terms of the comedies and stuff that wouldn't be made today, I mean, things like... When Harry Met Sally, would that be made today? I honestly wouldn't bet on it because, like, as I say in the book, the reason movies have changed is because they're now not made with the American or English speaking market in mind, they're made more with China and Russia in mind. And these are why we see lots of superhero movies, and things like Transformers or Avengers or whatever, movies that don't depend on dialogue and plot because those are obviously very hard to translate for international markets. What are made now are big, huge budget movies because movies take a lot more money to market overseas now and you need to globally advertise them. So you need movies that are guaranteed to make hundreds of millions of dollars that aren't difficult to translate for foreign. Audiences, and that's why we don't see movies like *The Breakfast Club*, which is very specific in its evocation of the American suburbs in the '80s, or movies like you say, like uh, the kind of the comedies that don't star beautiful, perfect-looking people.
1: Yes, but in the '80s, Stallone was making stupid movies, Schwarzenegger was making stupid movies. It's not like we lacked for stupid movies. <laughs>
0: And stupid movies, like, I, I have no problem with stupid movies. You know, I've memorized, I think, every single one of police Academies, including the last one, Mission to Moscow, which I can still recite when drunk. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with stupid movies. I have no problem with stupid movies. But I do think we've lost movies that have, qu- have funny dialogue that you still quote. I mean, what decade movies do you quote as much as 80s movies? Things like, things like Fair Few years Day Off. I mean, we, we, you were quoting that ahead of the show. And there aren't movies made with that kind of dialogue in mind anymore because that dialogue doesn't really get written for movies anymore.
1: You don't think the Apatow movies come close?
0: Oh, God. <laughs> You know, I, really, I do like the Apatow movies. I loved 40-Year-Old Virgin. I thought that was adorable. My problem with the Apatow movies is that they present a very... Weirdly reductive vision of of masculinity, basically, and male friendship, and most of all of women. And I wouldn't mind it in like one or two of his movies, but that he keeps doing it over and over. That men are these kind of reluctant man boys who are forced to grow up by these kind of shrewish women. And the argument that actually his movies are feminist because it shows the women are grown ups and the men are children just doesn't hold water because the men are always more fun in his movies and the women are always pain in the neck. Well, he, um, well, he made so, tra- he made so. train wreck so. That was He made Trainwreck, in which the conclusion is that for a woman to keep her boyfriend, she has to get fired from her job, dance like a cheerleader, and literally break her ankle. So I wouldn't put it up there in terms of (laughs) Gloria's item, in terms of great feminist statements of the 20th and 21st centuries. Maybe the
1: difference is why Apatow doesn't go down as smoothly for you, is he is making those movies about man-child or... You know, men, people who sh- are in their 20s or 40, you know, per the titular 40-year-old virgin, who are behaving like children, whereas these movies that you loved were actually about children.
0: Well, I think the other difference is is that when you look at Apatow movies, I don't just want to pick on Jed Apatow, I mean, I would also look at the Hangover movies and all those kind of those bromances, as they're called now. What's so striking about them is that the men in those movies... Always have the more powerful jobs. They're the ones who earn money, and the women are you know are the less powerful ones. They often don't work. They often stay at home. They're the housewives. They're the secretaries. They're somehow professionally inferior, and it's a really jarring thing once you start to notice it. And when you look at '80s movies, that's really not the case. I mean, we've already mentioned Sigourney Weaver. You know, she's a classical cellist department member in the in the Ghostbusters, but the Ghostbusters are these basically unemployed scientists. You think of Moonstruck where Cher is an accountant or Nick, and Nicholas Cage is a baker. Raising Arizona, where Holly Hunter is a police officer and Nicholas Cage is a convict. Over and over in eighties movies, the way they get around it is they give these women these very powerful jobs and men are slightly inferior and that keeps the balance more steady.
1: I also think that there uh, was more it was a more realistic depiction of class people of different classes, whereas I think the Judd Apatow movies and I think he's one of the bet I think he's one of the best in doing really good movies. but. But he also does this thing that you always see on sitcoms that it would be so discomforting to the viewers to set it in a house that's kind of small and uncomfortable. So they're all living in these pretty palatial palaces, just like the TV show Friends. It's supposed to be comforting. Whereas, uh, okay, John Hughes movies were often set in leafy suburbs. But then later, John Hughes movies were, you know, he depicted people from the wrong side of the tracks. He consciously wanted to do that.
0: Very much so. That's a major part of John Hughes's film, because he himself grew up lower middle class in an upper middle class area. So He always had this enormous class consciousness that is repeated over and over in his movies, whereas Judd Apatow films, and most movies made today, show very upper middle class people. And again, this comes to selling it to farm markets in that the idea of American class issues, aren't treated in movies anymore today. It's just not seen as relevant to the foreign market, and it's not seen as something that people want to watch.
1: So, Hadley, you're a day job. You write for The Guardian, right? Mm-hmm. And you cover, right. you cover culture. You write about movies?
0: I do culture, politics, anything that's interesting, Really.
1: So, I would assume that people come through, sometimes these movie stars, and you talk to them. Maybe they're sitting down with you or on a junket. I'm just trying to get into the process. So, you t- you talk to them about the latest project, and then what? There's a t- Time four questions in where you're like, look, I just got to ask you about Pretty in Pink.
0: Yes, <laughs> pretty much so. I mean, one of the main reasons I wanted to write this book was so I could go around and ask all my childhood heroes about these movies. And the idea for the book really came when I interviewed Ellen Page um, a few years ago. Obviously, I'd you know, seen Juno, I'd thought about it a lot, and it frustrated me that the message was so anti-abortion in it. And I just started to ask her about it, and she kind of reared back. And She was defending it, saying, oh, you know, if she'd had an abortion, then there wouldn't have been a movie. And I said, well, that's fine, except for the scene when your character goes to get an abortion, and she's dissuaded from doing so by a protester out in front saying that your baby has fingernails. And that comment is what makes Gino not have the abortion, as well as going into the clinic, which is just depicted as this disgusting CD place with the receptionist kind of lasciviously looking a lollipop. Like that is how you weight the scales. And she suddenly reeled back and went, Oh my God, you're right. Mm. And I thought, This is something that people don't see. This is something that people don't realize that how anti-abortion movies are today because this, you know, Gino came out the same year as Knocked Up and another indie film called Waitress, which all had weirdly anti-abortion messages. And I obviously grew up on Dirty Dancing and Fast Times at Ridgemont High fame in which abortion is just part of the plot and it's not seen as a major deal. And then as it happened, I also interviewed Judd Apatow that same year, I believe, and also Diablo Cody for another movie. And I mentioned it to both of them and neither of them really wanted to hear about it, like that their films, I felt, had anti-abortion messages. And I understand that. You don't want to have some mouthy hack sort of criticizing your movie. But I just thought, this is something people really don't see. And I need to look at this more because it, it can't just be abortion. The fiction of abortion thats changed in the past 30 years. I bet it's other things, too. And it was. So that, that's how the book came about.
1: What other uh, either stars or directors or people you've talked to really cottoned to your questions about movies they did 30 years ago and which ones pushed back?
0: (laughs) Well, um, one person who really got excited about it, uh, the first one was uh, Eleanor Bergstein, who wrote Dirty Dancing. And I tracked her down when I decided to start writing this. And I said, I called her up and I said, you know, I've just got to ask you, is your movie really actually just a massively pro-choice message? Was that why you did this? And she sort of gasped at the other end of the phone. And she said, I've been waiting 30 years for someone to ask me that question. And I thought, wow, this is something real. And then I started calling basically everyone who I grew up watching and loving. So I called up Ron Howard. I finally tracked him down. And I said to him, you know, I love your 80s movies so much. You know, things like Cocoon and Splash. Do you think they could get made today? And there was this long pause. And he said, you know, I, I really don't think even I could push them through today. I have just realized that this is something that these people are all seeing, people who are still working in a movie business who have been doing so for 30 years. And it's something that people don't talk about. There are real changes, and there are actual reasons for those changes. And a lot of that is economic, and some of it is social. And it's something that I, I wish people would see.
1: Hadley Freeman is the author of Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons We Learned from 80 Movies, and Why We Don't Learn Them from Movies Anymore. Thank you so much, Hadley.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And now the spiel, things I haven't talked about. There are, I think, three big categories of things I haven't talked about. You know, I talk about a lot of things. You know that. You're listening to that. But there are three categories of things I don't talk about. The first category is things that no one really needs to be talking about. Justin Bieber's wiener. That's one thing. You know, things like that. You want to talk about it? Fine. I will not gainsay that which you'd like to listen to, but no one really needs to be talking about it. The second category is things that are fine if other people want to talk about them. Like, I'm glad they're on the news. That's fine. I have nothing interesting to say about them. If I were to invent an angle, it would be forced. Sometimes it's just the straight recitation of news, like Bombing of 51 people in Turkey, attack on a train in Germany, attack on a train in Switzerland, when I can tie all these things together or think of an interesting point about all of them, or some of them, I'll say it. But I don't need to get to every single one of them. Another example of something like this is wildfires and floods. Is there a villain to this? Is there a way to stop them? Yeah, there's a big way to stop them. It's the global warming thing. I talk about that. I don't talk about the individual, the likely individual consequences of global warming. There, of course, were floods and fires, even before there was global warming or any knowledge thereof. I understand why the news covers this. It's important to show our fellow Americans, our fellow man dealing with problems. Also, to be honest, doesn't it make for terrific TV? Those shots, the fire shots, great to look at. That's a big reason why they put it on TV. People waiting around, knee deep, neck deep, dogs, dog paddling. It's another reason they put it on TV. But floods, they just, they just flood over me as a news consumer. It's a guy, it's a canoe, it's a Red Cross, it's a house underwater. It's awful. I am not diminishing the awfulness. But again, I don't have much to add. We know about global warming. I do not have much to offer. But that guy and the canoe and the dog and the shelter and the Red Cross, you just mix those elements in a different order. And that's the story. Throw in an aerial shot. That's the coverage. Now, there's a, another category of things that are fine. I'm glad they're covered somewhere for the some people who want to know about them. But they're real details about a process or about sort of a, a closed subculture where I might care about the ultimate outcome, but I don't necessarily care how the cooking is done and who's buying the ingredients. Let me give you an example of some of these internal working stories. Casting of superhero movies. I'll take it further than that. Casting of any movie. I will watch the movie or maybe not if it got terrible reviews, but I never get too excited about who's cast in any movie. Even a movie that I anticipated, like I was very excited for the new Star Wars movies. I did not care who they cast in that movie at all. Here's another example Buffalo Sabre roster construction, and not just the Buffalo Sabres. Most sports where I will watch the sport, who goes on to what team, unless they're my specific teams, I don't have much of a care. Now, if it's some sort of weird coaching decision, hey, we're going to go without goalies, that I'd care about. But in general, the internal workings of a team until they hit the ice, the pitch, the field, don't care. Here's another one. The Israeli cabinet. Shake up in the Knesset. Not to me, it's not. Now, don't get me wrong. I could be interested if the cabinet changed in a notable way. Like if the backup goalie is now the starter, it does not really interest me. Just as if Zvippy Livny has gone from justice to foreign affairs. Eh, color me beige. Here's another one. Redstone family drama. Nonagenarian is or isn't in control of his senses. Daughterly Scion seeks to restore power. Something about an obsession with steak and sex. That came out, I know, no more than the phrase I just gave you. Is he in control of his senses? Is he out of control of his senses? I don't know. I'm not saying who controls the media isn't important, but how will this shakeup tangibly change things? I mean, it will, but we just don't know how until we see how it changes. I'm not ignorant who controls CBS and Viacom and MTV and all those stations. That's hugely important, but we can't. Do anything but guess on how they're going to change until they change. And we can't really do anything about it. Anyway, these are the palace intrigue type stories. Sex and stake. But there is one last category of story that I haven't talked about. And it's this. It's stories I should have covered. Like the Obama exchanges. I got to get to that one. But here's a big story I really needed to get to. And you know what? Let's do it right now. Not quite breaking news.
0: The famed Los Angeles Playboy Mansion belonging to Hugh Hafner, founder of the Playboy Empire, has been sold for $100 million, and Hafner90 will live in the mansion for the rest of his life.
1: Well, it's good to see a municipal landmarks commission weighing in to help the little guy. I say even with a crumbling edifice and rotting infrastructure, we need to protect Hugh Hafner. Now, that $100 million price tag that they quoted, that, by the way, does not include an estimated $15 million in disinfectant that will have to be deployed in the grotto area alone. Purell trading up on news of the sale. Here from CNN Money is Connor Hefner, Hugh Hefner's 25-year-old son, relating to us, us normals, some stuff about his childhood. The bizarre part of growing up at the house is you go, ah, this is a really great room, and then all of a sudden you go, why are there mirrors on the wall? But some aspects of Connor Hefner's childhood don't make you go, ew; they make you go, aww. We have uh, one of the only private zoo permits in California. Aw oh, man, that is an extra expense right there. Because, you know, there are just some things that a peacock can never unsee. The Playboy Mansion is home to a Noah's Ark of animals who have been repeatedly traumatized by the sight of Don Adams and James Caan getting busy in the grotto. You never knew a lemur could shake like that until he caught sight of Shell Silverstein shirtless. Yeah, they had to hire a PTSD animal for their PTSD animals. And that animal had to be retaught the meaning of laughter by Dom DeLuise. Though Heff will continue to reside within, the new owner of the Playboy Mansion is the entrepreneur who brought the rights to Twinkies and Hostess products, thus ensuring that it remains the place for Ho-Ho's and an iconic brand that lacks an expiration date. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Mary Wilson, who tried to talk me out of that ho-ho reference, and erstwhile Canadian Chris Berube, who convinced me that Vashan Croquettes were the direction to go with that Twinkie reference. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts and the Hadash Party shadow minister of the development of the Negev in Galilee. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He is a quintagenarian. The Gist, well done. And not rare, Summer Redstone and I have that in common. Umperu, Depuru, Du and thanks for listening.